0: Hello and welcome to episode 83 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. I'm your host, Matthew Nugabauer, coming to you on this July 20th, 2021. And it is the Return of the Jedi episode in 1983, counting that. But we're not going to do anything Return of the Jedi related. Maybe might get there. Who knows? Explicitly. I don't, I'm not so sure. Uh, a bit of a change of the scheduling, my planning. I thought I was going to do maybe the Loki uh, season one series f- season finale commentary but i might do that end up doing that next week because i did end up getting just you know ireland's out of the shadows in uh i wanted to start reading that but i also then wanted to get uh all my thoughts out of from kevin scott's the rising storm out so we're going to talk about that today talking about uh jedi masters specifically stellan elzar and uh, loden in the rising storm yes this will be wonderfully spoilery if you haven't read that book yet please go for it it is wonderful really well written really intensely paced and if you want to listen to some more general thoughts and some thoughts about the jedi and a grand army for the for the galaxy uh listen to the uh, episode i recorded just a few days ago um episode 82 going into all of that so this will be commentary rising storm commentary number two before that i do want to Bring back the pull list. I know I uh, kind of let that slide a little bit as well. Even as War of the Bounty Hunters keeps heating up, going on, we are finally at the party, at the ball. And I, I want to mention War of the Bounty Hunters number two, the uh, kind of a flagship uh, run by Charles Sewell, and Dr. Afra number 12 by Alyssa Wong. Those two came out on the same week. And the thing I want to highlight there is In it, there's the exact same scene, the exact same beats. I think they're in the same part of the comic uh, (laughs) both times. And I read uh, Dr. Aphra and then I read The War of the Bounty Hunters right after each other. And it was this at first this kind of odd, surreal thing. I wasn't so sure if it worked at first because I was reading them one right after each other. It might have been more interesting if I'd given a week of a gap. But what did end up working a little bit better, though, is what's different. Then, first of all, you have in Afra uh, it cuts to just Lucky and Ariel. Uh, it cuts to I use that in a film <laughs> terminology. It cuts to them and what's going on in their story, which is specific to Doctor Afra and, and what had been built up before. And then, and of course, there's this mysterious hooded figure who Aphra mentions sounds like a clone. says, he isn't a clone. So we think, oh, is that Boba Fett? That probably is Boba Fett, green and red. But we're not sure. And then you read uh, War of the Bounty Hunters number two. and You see it from Boba Fett's perspective and how he ends up getting the cloak. And there's more to uh, uh, Kira's speech, which interestingly in Dr. Aphra, I thought was very short and perfunctory, not the kind of thing you want in a grand gala and ball and auction for millions and million, or what it turned out to be a million, a hundred million credits on the line. And uh, so I, I figured that was just Aphra zoning out, zoning out a little bit um, as she tends to do when things go blah, 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 on and on. Whereas in more of the bounty hunters, we get more of that speech. So, overall I, I think fairly effective and then the ending which I won't spoil for you yeah uh, just as gripping just as chilling either way I do want to mention uh, I won't again won't go into spoiler details for that but uh, Alyssa Wong depicting Afra having a tra- what I, I think is a traumatic uh, anxiety a trauma-induced anxiety attack and that was actually really effective with the red kind of her Seeing Red, if you will. I thought that was really well done. So, uh, it's going on. It's really hit its stride. Uh, another interesting thing to pick up is the way different authors, in, in a true crossover, but really helpful, interestingly and effectively, the way different storylines from different comics are coming in. So, we have Sly Moore, Administrator Sly Moore. He, uh, he she... Forget, <laughs> um, is there from the Vader comic, and we know that they're plotting against Vader, but they're in this party up on behalf of the Empire, and uh, so uh, different and again effective things that we're we're called we're supposed to remember that you may or may not catch if you're just reading the War of the Bounty Hunters uh, flagship line, which you're free to do, and I'm sure you you'd get things out of it, but I I do recommend at least read one other book outside of it. And and that one other book should be Greg Pak's Star Theater. But that's, I, I digress on that. Um, another thing I do want to note is Star Trek Year 5. I'm going to switch universes a little bit. Star Trek Year 5, number 21, concludes this really fascinating arc where Spock is sent back in time to our 300s, the time of the Great Vulcan Awakening, and... He sees more accurately Vulcan history the way you know he meets Surak and things aren't as, as what he thought they were because history is rarely what we make it out to be, at least fully. So that was uh, a really intriguing and, and gripping and and I'm all you know I'm all in, into Vulcan lore. <laughs> it's I think I'm very fascinated by. Jedi Masters of the Rising Storm. And so Jedi Master characters. And I said off the top. The three I'm primarily thinking of. Are are Elzar Man, Stellan Geos. And Loden Storm. And I'll start by talking about Elzar and Stellan. Because they do take up. A large proportion of this story. Uh, You know. Leading the way. Leading the charge. I mean Indira Stokes. And uh, some other characters. are, Are very much part of it. I will say one time, once this wave is concluded, I'm going to do a whole episode on the Padawans uh, of, of this wave because they seem actually, frankly, more um, significant, more fleshed out. But for now, let's look at Elzar and Stellan. And, and from my, my initial thought, my main thought is that they tend to be moving in uh, converging a converging path. And it looks, so it looks like the opposite, but they're starting from very different places. Uh, and so the fact that they're converging is also an interesting plot point here. What I mean by that is Elzar, it's clear for Elzar to see this, is he starts very much in the roguish mold that he, uh, you know, we, we see him when we meet him in Light of the Jedi for example. You know, Avar, Chris, who isn't in this book at all, in, in Rising Storm at all she comments on how he needs to go his own path and do his own thing and um, not quite a wayfinder because he is a uh, maybe he isn't a master by that point um, so uh, there's a, a bit of a misnomer but uh, senior Jedi of the Rising Storm, fine <laughs> um, he, he's off doing his own thing and in a roguish way and doesn't quite follow the council but the Jedi of the High Republic, they're more secure in and, and not too worried about the diversity of the order. And so they're, they're good with, with that going on. It's not considered so antagonistic until he gets this vision at the very end of Light of the Jedi. And uh, that really spooks him and uh, really jars him. And that sets him on this path. We'll see, you know, and I'll mention in a minute of him needing more help. <laughs> we still see in *The Rising Storm*, even with hints with uh, in *The End of Light of the Jedi*, that he he's willing to fudge the whole celibacy thing. With Avar, he he fudges it. He kind of pushes against the line. Avar does not. She's well, Stellan, we're not Padawans anymore. Uh, but then, of course, in, in *Rising Storm*, he. Ends up hooking up with the, the, the event planner. of The whole darn fair. <laughs> and that could have been possibly this big incident. But he doesn't fully uh, worry about those consequences. Until the attack happens. And the attack from the Nihil. And he really uh, blames himself for uh, not being at his post. Not focusing on his duty. Um, not... You know, for for keeping the uh, fair organizer. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on her name. Uh, keeping her from not being in position to respond either, and yeah, all these things come together to shock him once more and jar him once more. And the last little bit, um, this most climactic thing in his story, is uh, one, You know, out during the attack, one of those floating islands is falling and he's trying his darndest to stop it with the force and hold on. And he knows, Oh, or at least he thinks, and he's tempted. We don't fully know what the moral import of this is, but he's tempted and thinks, Oh, I've got to tap into rage and anger and even the guilt and shame of, uh, being in in someone's bed while he should be out protecting and helping, uh, Ward off this Nile attack, and so he taps into that, and that's what gives him the strength to to push the uh, the island over into the lake. I believe that's what happens. The details sometimes a bit fuzzy. It's a very dense book. <laughs> um, the point being, he taps into the dark side, and he uh immediately to him, I think that's the end of his. Roguish ways to some extent. I don't see him fully losing that. But uh, again, he keeps getting these warning signs for him. The way he interprets it. Keeps getting spooked and um, guided, maybe guided by the force on this path to say, "Uh, You need to rein it in, bud. (laughs) You need to take it easy. Um, And more importantly, what he says to Elzar is... He confesses it. To credit, he confesses, I've tapped into the dark side. I've uh, gone to this place that I recognize as destructive. Not simply because the Jedi in their in their rules and their order say, oh, this is off limits. But because if unchecked, I could become a dangerous weapon for the dark side. And he, maybe it's... In a way, the the rogue you know, ability to discern for himself, to actually look at this himself, that is something I keep mentioning Qui-Gon, and I'm going to mention Qui-Gon a few times in this episode. Uh, something Qui-Gon's able to to do and see is you know, he's trained himself to not simply accept things because that's what the Jedi tell him to do, the council tells him to do, but if this is what's right, if this is what's good. It takes Elzar a little longer to get there. We haven't seen, you know, this is just the beginning of his journey with this, but the, uh, you know, I I do think there is a move towards, and I do see this as a move towards uh, being more a part of this Jedi family. Not that he wasn't a part of it, but being more a part of it, being more willing to be held by it supported by it um it's going to be this conflicting journey for him because he is so used to going off on his own figuring things out on his own and uh i i hope he's able to actually recover the best of that the best of that impulse because as we see and we as we know in life today and we know in church life today, again, we, as we see with Qui-Gon, as we see with folks who um, you know, don't necessarily need to heed the rules of, of church life as strongly or strictly, they have developed within themselves a stronger muscle to discern and think for themselves and think more clearly. Hopefully, as that is guided by the family of the Jedi that come around him. Um, it makes me think of what in, in church talk, we, we understand by a, a well-formed conscience. And the fact is with Elzar, his conscience was not terribly well-formed in terms of the content, in terms of, uh, an aversion to dipping into the dark side. Um, you know, uh, I've talked about celibacy and all that before, but you know I mean is he a- a accurate to be bl- to blame himself for slipping up on up on his duty and not being in the right place at the right time? No, I think that is a bit of an exaggeration, but it it's an attachment or it's it's at least a momentary attachment and the thing about Jedi and attachments is the you know or they're partly right. <laughs> It's, again, the connection to um, the way we talk about monks and priests being free to be available, to show hospitality to a wider range of people. Um, It's just whatever you happen to be called to. And so that fully formed conscience or a well formed conscience requires both these muscles that you can uh, discern and know how to discern what is right based on uh, the information in front of you, based on the circumstance in front of you, within the support, within the guidance, within potentially the correction of the wider wider fa- church family, within the, the, wider, um, the wider tradition. Right? One last point I do want to say about Elzar and this is actually Stellan commenting on Elzar and something that again part of this roguish element that I think I hope he holds on to but that gets harnessed and gets uh, pressed into a more constructive direction Stellan is saying that this is on page 148 says that Elzar is affected by his surroundings and Stella knew it as the way man, Elzarman, connected to the force, how he thought the way he did. And again, that, that goes both ways. That could be, you could be unduly uh, affected by your surroundings and not have the consistency of action and choice that, uh, that you need. And consistency and clarity, right? And that's that's the funny thing is. That muscle I speak of, it's about a muscle of seeking clarity and seeking um, you know, clarity of, of why you're doing what you're doing, why this is maybe a good thing to do, why to deny and not do something. Is, you know, to, it's not a good idea to go down this other path. And so the tradition, the family of the church can help with that, but also... The muscles of a conscience and what a, another thing then i thought about was i think about how you know pope francis spoke of needing clergy who smell like the sheep clergy who are sensitive and aware of uh, the surrounding contexts that they're a part of not just surrounding but embedded into um, you know he, he can really be positioned then when and if he is more uh, more open and more trained, have the muscle of being a part of the Jedi family, more convincingly he's able to uh, be, have a stronger prophetic call for the Jedi to be out amongst the people. Out sensitive to the way they live and what they experience. We know that uh, that's something that the jedi end up reneging on they end up uh, falling away from and turning back on but it's something you know qui-gon constantly pushed for Right? we see uh, even in master and apprentice how he's able to go go to the planet and see what happened with the checker corporation that, that that's a good reminder that st- uh Elzar has something of Rael Averroes in him, both you know, fudging the celibacy thing and being the rogue. Um, and he skirts a similar line there and, and, and crosses a similar line of being maybe too affected by his surroundings. With Elzar, there is the opportunity uh, to rely on, here's the thing, the attachments with his attachment to Stellan, his attachment to Avar even as Stellan and Avar are out in saving the galaxy, right? Uh, Elzar has the opportunity then to help save the Jedi. If he's able to, again, be more open, be a part of the family, not in a way that sacrifices um, who he is and what he's on about, but in a way that says this is what is good for the Jedi as a whole and is committed to that, right? It's still that self-giving, even if it looks a little uh, a little more selfish <laughs> and self-focused. It isn't necessarily the case. And so now we can talk about Stellan Geos. And I should note, I have been able to read into uh, the first the prologue in the first chapter of out of the shadows and Stellan's in that too, even though again, it's a young adult junior no- or not junior novel, but a young adult novel. It is more focused. That is more focused on, on, Vern and her story. At least I think it will be. Uh, she's on the cover with her Padawan. So that, yeah, that'll be again, the, the episode about the Padawans. And I will definitely have things to say, I'm sure about uh, out of the shadows, but what's interesting in that is this is uh, the shadow is set a few months later and stellan has a beard <laughs> and here again is what i mean by the converging trajectory with elzar a bit of an opposite trajectory and uh, in that same paragraph about elzar uh on page 148 stellan is reflecting about himself and how he spent most of his life in, uh, in a temple and in the, in the safety and comfort of the Jedi family. And what's important for me to, to see there, what's important to note there is that's not presented as a bad thing. He's not necessarily any more sheltered than, um, you know, or, or, or more, he's not necessarily, well, any more sheltered than any other Jedi is. Um, I wonder if he had a similar Padawan formation, I can use that term, that Wraith Silas maybe has, that Comac Vitus had, that more, yeah, more, a bit more scholarly bent, a bit more, certainly more committed to the, uh, again, I talk about this a lot, the family of the Jedi, the institutions, the traditions, um, the, you know, the common life. Of the Jedi, passing that on, and what we see with with Stellan then is he's then thrust into this position of leadership. We meet him as a council member, on the you know the, the High Council, which, in the time of the High Republic, you know, in the time of the late Republic, it's still super important and super uh, powerful position. But in the time of the High Republic, that is a position of galactic importance. The Republic as a whole, given how we see the relationship between the Republic and the Council is a lot more intertwined, uh, a lot more collaborative, I should say. And, and so that Jedi do have Jedi Council members. We see the reverence paid by Senators to Council members more explicitly than we did in the prequels. We even see the Togruta calling calling him Lord Jedi. He is a master. And in order, and and that too could have gone either way to both ways. He could have been, Stellan could have been incredibly doctrinaire, incredibly, uh, dismissive and cold of Elzar's roguish ways. Thankfully, I think Elzar's rubbed off on him a little bit, even as they were Padawans growing up together. Um, what i see with with stellan then is not so much embracing a rogue element but learn he's had to learn to trust his own discernment even more and it's been harder because when you really committed to the system to the family to the order uh yeah like i said you could he could have been more just rote tradition and not sensitive to the needs of folks in front of him we see the way he interacts with bell for example and how uh, how sensitive i mean that's the word there, sensitive to how bell has cut himself off from the force so, you know instead of being a harsh disciplinarian there he he's able to be patient and and notice, and you know, we we might say read his mail. He's able to uh, encourage Bell to explore a little more and and reach out a little more and trust his own training a little more. We're gonna see, you know, we've already seen again with in uh, out of the shadows how the interactions with Vern. This is again very early in that book, so I don't quite know where that's going, but. With Vernestra, his former padawan, and how she was able to uh, pass the trials, incredibly young, incredibly early. What uh, you know, what Stalin's able to do during this crisis is, uh, I mean, he's able to step forward. He's able to uh, take the lead in handling the, this attack on the Nile. He's the one who helps. Uh, and, you know, helps Chancellor So, I believe, and helps the Tagruda monarch, uh, get to safety and get to rescue. Yeah, I think he's going to have to really lean into uh, his own sense of what's right and wrong, if he's going to be a protagonist. If he's going to be written in the twenty first century, by folks who have, I mean, different views of tradition and church and religious life um, he's going to have to you know and, and just to be to connect with people of our age and our audience you know we don't understand stories of people who are wrote doctrinaire as protagonists and, and I'm saying this is as going to be a positive character development for him too he's going to continue to have to uh, think for himself and discern for himself He's gonna be have to be the anti Mace Windu, in that sense. That Mace, more than anyone, really just goes along for the ride to defend the order at all costs, even the cost of its own soul. Even Mace Windu is presented as a bit of a protagonist, but it's still iffy. I think this is this is indeed closer to Obi Wan Kenobi in. Uh, in the prequel trilogy. There is maybe, yeah, some similarities there in that uh, both Qui-Gon and Anakin have required Obi-Wan to be more uh, creative, more uh, confident of a leader to say, I'm going to go to Uda pau and take care of Grievous. I'm going to have this creativity to warn Jedi to stay away from the temple that kind of thing I think is where Elzar is going to take that kind of heroic leadership. And, uh, you know, he's already had, again, positive influence on Padawans and to have a positive influence on Padawans is to ensure that they have the freedom to push and to grow and explore. And again, we saw with the bell, I think we're going to see that with Vernestra, uh, yeah it's the the type of leader that i can kind of look up look up to that i think a lot of folks in the system if you will need to learn to look up to because we do well to grow our beards a little longer if you will to um i mean at least the connotation that has now i guess it has, used to have a very more traditionalist connotation but um the connotation that it had in uh for Obi-Wan with Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith in that he's able to express his own creativity and explore his own creativity in leadership, in the stakes, galactic stakes as part of the High Council. I, I'm going to be intrigued. Again, I'm more intrigued by the story of the Padawans, but I'm going to be intrigued by the way they handle Elzar as, or not Elzar, Stellan as um you know the model of what Jedi leadership, religious leadership should be. We we don't have again, we don't have too many stories like that. You know, I think of um what's the what's that novel? Dan Brown, but not uh not the the Mary Magdalene one. The other one where um oh my goodness. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on uh the other movie that I actually liked a lot better where the the, the papal candidates are all in danger and uh, Tom Hanks character has to protect and save them. Anyway, we see some of those candidates actually with integrity and um, courage. The novel itself is of course, from what I gather more, uh, more nefarious and more cynical. Um, yeah, that, that's the closest I think we've gotten in a lot of places to a wider audience seeing a story of religious leaders. I guess there's the two popes, but that is a very cynical story about Benedict as much as it is a rosy picture of Francis. Um, I'll be curious to see how well they, then they handle Stalingius and, and the rest of the High Council. We saw Dora Malley her, and her take see Geos and his take on tradition, tradition and innovation. So maybe the last Jedi was the best, closest that we've gotten <laughs> in some ways, even though there's no character that embodies that tension. So closely, although Luke does end up in the end, I think, embody that tension. But he he dies. He, you we know, don't see him live through it and process through it while having to lead an order. <laughs> um we might see Luke's story a little you know from earlier time when he's trying to rebuild the order that'll be fascinating to have that similar tension is he going to look at someone like Stellan and say okay well in his time he was able to handle all this change and adapt to this change while also maintaining the integrity of the order of the Jedi, its traditions, its beliefs, as servants of the light, for light and life. And Stellan as his own, in his own personal integrity. I think that's, that is what we see in Obi-Wan. I know that's debated, but I think hopefully that is what we see in the Kenobi series, for example. Maybe we'll see it in the Ahsoka series with Ahsoka, who I think ends up doing something similar, even though she definitely has the more rubbish origins. Um, we'll see how they handle Stone. Okay. Lastly, and maybe briefly, we'll see, uh, is loading greats to him. And the reason I bring him up is because uh, in this, and he doesn't have a significant part in this story, at least on the surface. We, we, yeah, I'll get to that in a sec. Um, I thought he would. I thought he would be, the way they marketed him. Uh, you know, I had him. I've, I still have him as my lock screen on my phone. I've had it ever since that initial image that you see in the show art uh, was released. Yeah, I thought he would be a major leader of the Jedi, similar to what I think Stellan is going to be, and maybe Elzar, and and definitely the way Ava, how Avar is. I thought, Loden, we would be up there. As part of this, and again, here's the spoiler alert: he dies at the end of this. He gets captured by the Nile in, in Light of the Jedi, and he dies at the end. And uh, and the effect, and I I should maybe add to uh, my reflections on both Elzar and Stellan. He just crumbles, like uh, like I think mean, he gets dusted, as if you know Thanos dusting him. And I mean, that's one of the changes Stellan is going to have to face is him being scared out of his mind for the first time, this real threat of the, of the Nile. Anyway, Loden, um, he's no more. We, We saw, and we haven't seen very much of him in action. All we've seen really is his impact on Bell, especially. And, the lessons, and I think even flashbacks to, I think in, in Light of the Jedi, we see flashbacks of his training, throwing him off a cliff <laughs> and, and trying to catch him. Um, similar to what we saw with skier and uh, Keeve in the beginning of, of uh, the High Republic comic. Uh, we see the, the lessons, the inspirations that Loden has given to Belt. Um, again, to jump out of a flying vector, and we saw with Bell how uh, he was able to land safely because he was showing love and care for another being that he learned from 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 uh, Loden. He Bell is with Indira Stokes now, but he's her Padawan now, but that pull, that tug to Loden was still there. And then, of course, we see Bell find him, find Loden on, on the electric, and uh, on Grisal and uh, almost come to rescue him. And we think, okay, is, is this rescue going to happen? Uh, is, is Loden going to be a big part of, of the story going forward now? And again, it turns out he isn't. <laughs> he is uh, the mentor who departs. Got me thinking. Okay, he is. You know, he again. He isn't the uh, the Obi Wan type. He isn't whatever type. The Obi Wan type in in the prequel trilogy. He certainly isn't Luke or Leia or whoever. He is very much. There's this the this constant thread in Star Wars of again the mentor who is wizened and aged and is able to give wisdom to the next generation, but because of the hero's journey and the narrative, focus on this younger generation, discerning, figuring it out, this older mentor actually has to die, has to let go, has to leave. We see Obi-Wan on the Death Star intentionally take on that role. We see Qui-Gon... Uh, not so much intentionally, but I wonder if when he's meditating behind those force fields and Maul is scouring, is, is pacing like a cat, if he's facing that and recognizing that moment. I think Loden, one of the things he that may have kept him going while he's being tortured and captured, captured and tortured, and almost breaking. Uh, by, by Mark Rowe. And one of the things that keeps him going is the fact that it is Bell and Wreath and Verne and Keeves all. It's their turn to stand up and, uh, you know, the classic Star Wars thing of, of young people taking their steps into a wider world and contributing meaningfully to it. That Loden has contributed meaningfully you know, throughout his life. Again, the last, in these last moments, with the wisdom and with the uh, risky experiences that he's given Bell, and now that his great contribution is to step out of the way. And it is this tragic, surprising moment. But when you look at it that way, fits so perfectly with the mold. Just like, again, Luke on Octo. He... Uh, you know, he's done this cynical thing throughout this film. And then he is finally able to step out and do the one thing. Uh, He knows that will kill him, but yeah, he hears Yoda say, Ray has everything she needs. And then of course, Leia also says the same thing. Luke is able to give one last lesson of surrender of, uh, Peaceable, uh, peaceable defense, and knowing that it is time for Rey to take her steps into this wider world—the same thing that Obi-Wan did, uh, did for him, that Qui-Gon did for Obi-Wan, that Loden has done for Bell—and I do think the reverberations of that will continue to be felt, especially if. Bell is finally able to accept, do the trials and accept knighthood. I think this is actually the thing that will enable him to do it: is Loden being, Loden dying and becoming one with the Force. Um, I think that in part, even the name is a bit of a clue. I was Googling the, the show art and I just typed in Loden, and it says uh, a Loden is a thick, waterproof cloak or, or cloth that he's used as a cloak. And um, I wonder if the word load is related to that L-O-D-E. But a Loden is waterproof. Loden Great Storm. The cloak within the storm. The Great Storm of the Nihil. And all this crisis and change that Bell and the Jedi are about to face. That Bell has already faced through this attack. He ta- Bell shows incredible bravery. And would be the first to tell you is able to was able to do that um able to go and save kip and john and everyone else on that ship as many as he could on that ship because of the lessons that Loden had imparted to him and so that's why again i think bell is going to be a significant character going forward but again thanks to Loden in part of course bell is the main focus and it's bell's story but uh we all depend. That's the thing about tradition is we all depend not just on rules and structures and clear guidance, but the people who have led us through, our our mentors and leaders who have shown us the ropes, shown us the way, been patient with us when we clearly don't even get the basics, right? Like I was talking with Stellan. His, able, his ability to do that is going to be a great contribution. Loden, as well, um, in, in a more grander way, just because his Loden's stature and just the imagery of, of his great Leku coming down and that gravitas that he seemed to carry. That's going to reverberate, I believe, throughout. The, the story of the High Republic. So those are my thoughts on on Loden, on Stellan, on Elzar. Uh, yeah, got a, had a, ended up having a normal length episode. All right. Um, hopefully, you found that find it meaningful and inspiring. Next week, I will most likely get into Loki. Although this Friday, I should do a bit of business the uh, San Diego San Diego Comic Con at home. Panel on the High Republic that uh, is hopefully I suspect going to talk about uh, give more reveals and because it, you know, it's moderated by Christina Ariel and has uh, really the official Lucasfilm backing so hopefully for some more reveals about Wave Three maybe even Phase Two we'll see I'll give my instant reaction to that and I'd be joined by some friends for that. That'll be, look for that on Friday night. Uh, but, you know, for now, I'm definitely going to dive into Out of the Dark, uh, Out of the Shadows rather, and see what comes of that, I'm sure, again. You know, it'll give me things to talk about. But for now, this has been episode 83 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. if you like what you heard, if you thought it was it was helpful, unhelpful, whatever, uh, let me know on Twitter at neog485. Give me a follow on Instagram at MNEUG1138. Thanks for listening. May the Force be with you. Amen.